0: April 11th is one of 1967's first spring days. In the Shenandoah Valley, a warm breeze sweeps through the Blue Ridge Mountains and heads west to the quaint town of Staunton, Virginia. The trees rustle with renewed invigoration as the townspeople revel in the sunshine, enjoying each other's company in the charming, historic streets of their small, friendly community. Families line up at the sleepy shopping plaza, Terry Court, in front of High's Ice Cream, a popular stop for creamy milkshakes and opulent sundays. Two of the town's most beloved young women are behind the counter, 19-year-old Constance Smoots Heavener and 20-year-old Carolyn Heavener Perry. The Heaveners own the ice cream parlor, and the cheerful co-workers are also sisters-in-law. Constance, known as Connie, is the teen bride of Carolyn's brother Larry and reads the Bible every day. Carolyn has a sharp mind with words and numbers, and is a mother of two little kids. Their budding lives buzz about as they stay late to accommodate the crowds drawn by the good weather. But neither of them were scheduled to work today. They're filling in for someone else, a much less regarded coworker with a life darker than the two small-town sweethearts could possibly imagine. Sharon Diane Crawford, known as Diane, is also a teenage girl, but one that doesn't fit the traditional mold. While Connie and Carolyn, chipper married women, enjoy all the perks and admiration that come along with 1960s Americana, Diane, who is more withdrawn and spends less time dolling herself up, lives in the shadows of an era rife with prejudice. Although she is off duty, Diane makes an appearance at High's Ice Cream. She comes at night while Connie and Carolyn are closing. In the face of other seismic shifts happening at the time, what happens later at High's may not seem consequential. Just the day before, the state of Virginia argued against interracial marriage in the U.S. Supreme Court during the landmark Loving versus Virginia case. But for Staunton, April eleventh, 1967, is the pivotal day that will traumatize a vast swath of residents for nearly half a century. It's the day Connie Smoots-Heavener and Carolyn Heavener-Perry were found in the back room of the adorable family ice cream parlor, each with a fatal shot in the head. The bereft town searches for answers for 41 years, and parts of the excruciating mystery remain unsolved to this very day. But in 2008, we finally find out what happened when Connie and Carolyn faced their coworker that day in 1967. It's all thanks to a relentless local detective who tracks down an ailing 60-year-old Diane Wright in Staunton, quietly fading away under everyone's noses. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Sharon Diane Crawford, known today as Sharon Diane Crawford Smith, of both the questions she laid to rest and the baffling plot twists she revealed as she lay dying. It's the story of tortured teens and twisted adults, of corrupt police and pure-hearted detectives. It's the story of secret ties that spun an intricate web across an entire town. It exposes the ugly underbelly of a seemingly wholesome community and recounts a battle between undying commitments to justice and the dedication to protecting loved ones. I'm Estefania Haigman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Roy Hartless is 14 years old. He's a newspaper delivery boy, pedaling around Staunton's cozy streets before heading to school. Every morning, he drops a paper on the doorstep of a young couple. The wife is particularly kind, with round cheeks and a heartwarming smile. She's five years older than Roy, but her good-natured daily greetings make an impression on him. Her neighborly charm personifies the safe, close-knit world of Staunton until the day the headlines announce her gruesome death. Roy Heartless is shocked to lose Connie Heavener, one of the nicest stops on his paper route. A freshman at the local high school where Connie herself was recently a beloved cheerleader, the news deeply marks Roy. He can't understand why such a terrible thing would happen to lovable Connie, and neither can anyone else. There's no hint of who the killer might be or if that person might strike again making the attack random and frightening. Things like this just don't happen here, he told himself. The story is violent and inexplicable. In the mom-and-pop ice cream parlor, across the street from a monastery, two faithful Christians are found in a back room, lying one on top of the other, as if Connie had been trying to protect Carolyn. Chief Detective David Bocock is the first officer on the scene, And while Connie was dead on his arrival, Carolyn is rushed to the hospital. She passes away in the ambulance, leaving behind her husband, two children, and her brother, Larry, who had also lost his wife, Connie, in the same fell swoop. A few days after the crime, a cryptic note is found in Connie Heavener's purse. Tell Larry I love him, it reads. How did Connie know she was about to die? What happened that horrible night at Highs? One particularly heartbroken soul won't rest until he finds out. Not Larry, but the other most important man in Connie's life, her twin brother, Carol Smoots. Connie was Carol's built-in security blanket, and the two shared an intense emotional bond that only other twins can understand. Like many teenage boys, Carol was a bit mischievous. Connie always made sure to rein him in, seeing to it that he behaved in school and stayed away from girls with flimsy reputations. They relied on each other, sharing the same ecosystem of friends and family. Carol even dated Connie's friend, Carolyn, back in high school. Like Connie, Carolyn is known for her kind demeanor, but she is so sharp, equally as gifted with her left brain as right, that their relationship eventually ended because Carol couldn't keep up with her intellect. Yet Carolyn still becomes kin when Connie marries her brother, and in the spring of 1967, their mutual family is abuzz with gossip and excitement as they suspect Connie might be pregnant with her very first child. Until Carol receives an urgent call, pulling up to the flashing lights of police cars surrounding the innocuous ice cream parlor, the realization that Connie is gone forever fills Carol with a desolate horror that haunts him for the rest of his life. He is pitilessly robbed of his guardian angel, and he has no idea why. Carol's grief quickly turns to rage as months pass by and the cops still haven't bagged any suspects. When Carol finds a $50 parking ticket on his windshield that summer, he races to the police station and accosts Chief Detective Bocock, screaming in his face. Is this how you're spending your time? Writing $50 parking tickets when you should be finding out who killed my sister? Bocock rips up the ticket. It's true that not many suspects had been brought in for questioning. Connie and Carolyn's co worker Diane was one of the few people asked to take a polygraph test, although she had no real connection to the victims other than sharing the same workplace. She passed the test and the police moved on to other leads. In October, the police arrest a man named William Gus Thomas. At 24 years old, Thomas is a former high school teacher who is now unemployed and living close to the Terry Court Plaza. He is an unusual character, known for his slightly disheveled appearance and his penchant for telling tall tales. Some think he's downright crazy. Then, rumors begin to circulate, saying Thomas has been boasting all over town that he was behind the murders at High's Ice Cream. Furious and inconsolable, Carol Smoots waits for the trial of his sister's killer with vengeful anticipation. His wrath is so palpable that, as soon as Detective Bocock arrests William Thomas, he finds Carol and gives him a very stern warning. He makes it clear that if anything happens to William Thomas, if he somehow breaks his neck or even has a heart attack, Bocock will send Carol straight to jail. In the spring of 1968, nearly a year after the tragedy at High's Ice Cream, William Thomas is tried, but only for the murder of Connie Smoots-Heavener. Prosecutors would only have to produce a second trial for Carolyn Heavener-Perry if they lose the first case. The Smoots and Heavener families sit white-knuckled in the courtroom as they watch the police present a meager amount of evidence against the man who may have killed their daughters. The weapon still hasn't been found and alibis corroborate Thomas's claim that he was at a cousin's house when the crime took place. Detective Bocock is leader of the investigation and responsible for identifying Thomas as the culprit. His team found $138 missing from High's cash register that night, leading them to suspect the girls had been slain in a vicious robbery. William Thomas had confessed to the burglary during police interrogation, but maintains his innocence in court. The jury spends three hours deliberating and finds Thomas not guilty. The evidence against him is so scant that the trial for the second murder never takes place. And his name is cleared of both killings by December. It was a strange case to begin with. It just never made any sense to me, a former Staunton detective told The Hook, a weekly newspaper from Charlottesville, Virginia that is now out of print. Today, I could understand someone killing two people over $138, but back in the 60s, it just didn't happen that way. Yet, apparently, it did. The acquittal brings a whole new wave of devastation to the victim's families. For months after the trial, Carol Smoots is plagued by a lingering insomnia. Every single night, he stares at the ceiling of his bedroom, training himself to add, subtract, and divide random equations in his head because when his mind isn't busy, it flies back to the black and white tiled floor of High's ice cream, spattered with the blood of his beloved twin sister. Carol's hatred for Connie's killer is indescribable, and he is revolted by the Staunton police force, especially Detective Bocock, for letting his sister's killer slip away. Four decades later, Carol finally discovers who really murdered his twin. The information is delivered to Carol by another Staunton resident who can't erase the case from his mind. Someone who had been a newspaper boy all those years ago. Roy Heartless. In 1973, five years after Connie Smoot's Heavener and Carolyn Heavener Perrier slain, Roy Heartless graduates high school and joins the police force. He becomes part of their investigation unit in 1988. For years, he worked alongside cops who covered the murders at High's Ice Cream. Among them is Chief Detective Bocock, who takes it upon himself to teach Heartless many important investigative practices. But Heartless only begins scrutinizing the case himself in 1999, when the Heavener family demands to know why all the advancements in forensic science still hadn't led to any arrests. Heartless is eager to get cracking. He sends the bullet casings to a lab for analysis, but the results lead nowhere. He looks into the old case files and is surprised at what he finds. He's expecting to see a hefty file, as murder cases are usually about three inches thick. Instead, he's faced with only half an inch of material that provides very little answers. Roy is fiercely proud to be a member of the police force and his inability to do his job for a family 32 years in mourning makes Heartless sick to his stomach. Three excruciating decades of searching for answers hasn't just worn these families down emotionally. It's completely destroyed their trust in law enforcement. Roy promises the Heaveners that he will do everything he can to solve the case. Heartless diligently pursues every hint and whisper connected to the case, but by 2005, Heartless still has no leads. He retires after a long career in fighting crime, yet continues his detective work as a private investigator for hire. When it came to the High's ice cream case, however, he toils pro bono. He won't give up until he makes good on his promise. Heartless gradually gains a reputation as the expert of Connie and Carolyn's killings. He is so devoted that at one point, he flies to California to meet with William Thomas' ex-wife, who doubly confirms the wrongfully accused man had not been at highs that fateful evening. Gradually, townspeople contact Heartless with information, none of which yields any helpful leads. Then, in May 2008, one key witness unexpectedly finds their way to Heartless. One of the numerous citizen investigators working on the case, Lowell Sheets, is a well-established businessman in Staunton, the founder of S & W Appliances, and a cousin of Carol and Connie. Sheets contacts Heartless about a call he'd recently received from a 74-year-old woman named Joyce Bradshaw. I have information about the murders, she told Sheets. Bradshaw knew Sheets was a cousin of the departed, and she knew he was looking for answers. She had been shopping at a yard sale when she noticed an S & Appliances truck in the driveway. Seeing Sheets's work vehicle triggered a realization. It had been a long time coming, said Bradshaw. I just had to tell somebody. After 35 years of working on the High's ice cream case, Heartless finally meets with a woman who will provide the missing puzzle piece. Her story comes so far out of left field that Heartless has trouble believing her but the weight she is finally dislodging from her chest is too heavy to ignore. Back in 1967, Joyce Bradshaw was working at a local hospital. About 10 days before the murder, she receives an unusual phone call from one of her part-time aides, a 19-year-old named Diane. Diane is a helpful and respectful coworker, but she and Bradshaw aren't necessarily friends outside of work. So Bradshaw is taken aback when Diane calls, asking if she wants to grab a hamburger. That night, Bradshaw finds herself in Diane's car in the parking lot of Kenny Burger. Diane sits next to her, her round face covered by shadows. In the dim night light of street lamps, Diane turns to Bradshaw and tells her to open the glove compartment. Diane's voice is calm, but indiscernible. Bradshaw feels uneasy, She reaches for the compartment door, opens the handle, and a cold chill rushes through her body. Lying inside the glove compartment is a 25 caliber pistol. There's two bullets in that gun, Diane announces. One of them's for my stepfather. Bradshaw sits in a daze, petrified as Diane describes the horrendous physical and sexual abuse she suffered at the hands of her father figure. Then she returns to the second bullet. The other is for the Heavener girl. Bradshaw's shock and terror is so great, she has no idea how to handle this bewildering statement. She wraps up the conversation as fast as she can, hightails at home, and tries to forget what she heard. But she'll remember Diane's words forever, and will spend four decades regretting that she never asked Diane. Why would you want to kill one of the heaveners? When Bradshaw finishes recounting her story, Roy Hartless is skeptical. He's looked at the case from every angle, spoken to slews of citizens connected to the case and never once heard any mention of Diane. He calls Bradshaw's bluff. When she heard about the murders, why didn't you call the cops? He asks. I went to the police the day after the murders, Bradshaw replies, I went straight to Dave Bocock. Heartless is bulldozed. Why on earth would the teen want to murder sweet Connie Hevener? Why would Bocock suppress Bradshaw's testimony? After speaking with Bradshaw, Heartless prepares himself for a lengthy, arduous search for Diane. His years of experience have taught him how time consuming and painstaking it is to track down clues. He's well-acquainted with the excited, hopeful feeling that accompanies a new piece of information and knows better than to lean into it. He never expects to find his target only three months later, right in Staunton. The killer had been living under everyone's noses for a long, long time.
1: Elevate every morning with Tommy John's second skin underwear
0: In August 2008, as the summer days were waning, Heartless and Wayne Snodgrass, his partner of 26 years who was still in the force, find Diane, now known as Sharon Diane Crawford-Smith, lying on the bed of a nursing home, her tired body swathed in a hospital gown between sterile white sheets. She's only 60 years old, but she is dying of heart and kidney disease. They sit down by her side, preparing to get whatever information they can in the short time allotted to their visit. Her frail face is serene, and she listens patiently as Heartless and Wayne explain their visiting on behalf of the Heavener family, who still sought closure and would like to ask some questions. Good, Diane replies. I need closure too. Heartless's skeptical heart skips a beat. Diane had only worked at High's Ice Cream as a part-time employee for a short period of time. His mind beckons back to what Bradshaw confided, and he wonders to himself, why exactly would she need closure? Diane is unflappable as Heartless and Snodgrass ask basic, easygoing questions. She confirms that she had been scheduled to work the day Connie and Carolyn were put to death, but called in sick. She doesn't reveal much, and as their questions get more pointed— the conversation becomes a bit awkward. Time starts to run out and their meeting will soon come to an end. Heartless decides to take the plunge. He pauses and leans in closer to Diane. What would you say? He asks slowly. If I told you someone believes you may have shot these girls. Diane's peaceful demeanor suddenly changes. Her voice becomes higher, louder. Agitated. In a defensive tone, she retorts, where are y'all trying to go with this? Are you trying to say I did it? As soon as the nursing home door closes behind them, Snodgrass turns to Heartless and states out loud what both of them felt in their bones. She killed those girls. Heartless immediately contacts the police who continue interrogating Diane. Over the course of three more months, some indicting information trickles out. I had a very different lifestyle from many in those days, and those girls were taunting me. She eventually confesses to the police. I shot them. She recounts how she'd arrived at High's Ice Cream that night. I was just going to tell them that I couldn't work, and one thing led to another. Then why did she bring a gun? Joyce Bradshaw's testimony that Diane showed her the supposed murder weapon certainly indicates the alleged crime was deliberate. Yet Diane would maintain that the murders were not premeditated for the rest of her dwindling life. What Diane did admit, however, was her motive. Diane was never cut out to be the wife and mother of a nuclear family. As the police soon found out, she was a lesbian. And in 1960s Virginia... A girl who was attracted to other women was considered disgusting and unhinged. At the time, queerness was considered a mental illness by the American Psychiatric Association. Discrimination against queer individuals was perfectly legal all over the country. But in Virginia, it was encouraged by regulations that banned sodomy and prohibited the sale of alcohol to gay people. Sometimes, citizens went so far as to take the law into their own hands violently attacking hapless gays and lesbians. This sheds a light into Diane's treatment as a child by her stepfather, who, according to her deathbed confession, physically tortured her for being queer. The police ask Diane if this abuse pushed her over the edge. Painstakingly, through the aid of a ventilator, she replies, I don't know. I'm not trying to psychoanalyze it. Diane never did end up taking her stepfather's life, Maybe she was too traumatized to face her actual abuser. Maybe her experience with Connie and Carolyn was already too much to bear. Or maybe she hadn't planned to kill both girls and wasn't able to get hold of a third bullet. Diane explains that Connie and Carolyn bullied her about being a lesbian for a long time, and the investigators wonder how the girls even knew about her sexuality to begin with. How do kids find out about anything? Diane responds. I mean, it was really unusual back then. The very same year Diane pulled the trigger, CBS Evening News created the first network documentary about queer people. Entitled, CBS Reports, The Homosexuals, the broadcast was so controversial it almost never aired, as finding a sponsor was near impossible. Part of the documentary presented the results of a survey conducted by CBS journalists Two out of three Americans viewed gay people with disgust, discomfort, or fear. Did Connie and Carolyn feel the same way about Diane? In 2009, Connie's mother, Laverne Sowers, was interviewed by The Hook. My daughter was not the kind to tease people because they were different, she insisted. I think she may have pulled her aside and tried to get her to start living right. Was Connie a devout Christian Trying to save a wayward soul? As ignorant as they may have been, were the comments Connie and Carolyn made to Diane motivated by a desire to help a black sheep reintegrate into society? In a world where everyone was against her, did Diane, crumbling under the pressure of an abusive stepfather and a society constantly reminding her she didn't belong, murder two of the people who simply wanted to see her thrive? Or was Laverne Sowers, like many loving mothers, unaware of her teenage daughter's nastier side? Did Connie and Carolyn, saturated with the belief of an anti-queer community, torment Diane for sport? Maybe they even made her feel unsafe, both at work and in her own skin. In the same way Diane's stepfather disciplined Diane for her perceived sins, perhaps Diane sought to teach Connie and Carolyn a lesson for their malicious bullying. Even if this was the case, the punishment plainly exceeded the crime. Whatever it was that Connie and Carolyn had said to Diane, the unrelenting hatred that permeated every angle of Diane's life made it impossible for her to turn the other cheek that day. Laverne Sowers also grappled with this particular Christian principle. While other members of Connie's family met with Diane on her deathbed, Sowers refused to face and forgive the woman who stole her daughter's life. Connie and Carolyn may have passed on, but the love they inspired still runs strong. Roy Hartless, Carol Smoots, Laverne Sowers, and Lowell Sheets are just a few of the Staunton natives who spent decades pouring their time and energy into seeking answers. The girls' short lives were filled with adoring partners, parents, friends, and neighbors. Diane, on the other hand, was forsaken by nearly everyone. Well, except one person. One person who cared so much for Diane, he let her get away with murder. Chief Detective David Bocock. The day after the killings, Joyce Bradshaw hurries to the police station. She knows she can no longer ignore what happened in Diane's car that dark night. She finds Detective Bocock and anxiously unloads the sinister conversation with Diane that had been weighing on her for 10 days. Oh yes, I know Diane, Bocock responds. She used to come up to my farm to shoot target practice. Then he makes a comment that Bradshaw will never forget. She's a crack shot. It may seem like an offhand remark, but Bradshaw immediately understands it's a warning. Bocock's tone implies that Diane is unhinged, and if Bradshaw isn't careful, she could meet the same fate as Carolyn and Connie. A few days later, Detective Bocock contacts Bradshaw to let her know Diane's name has been cleared. The bullets from the scene of the crime didn't match the gun Bradshaw had described, and, as we already know, Diane passed the polygraph test. But Detective Bocock knows perfectly well that Diane's gun had taken Connie and Carolyn's lives. Because it is in his possession. When the police ask Diane about the murder weapon, they aren't prepared for the secret that unravels. We're not sure of the origins of Diane and Detective Bocock's relationship, but one thing we do know is that the two were close. We know Diane spent a lot of time at Bocock's rustic farm, practicing her aim by shooting pictures of animals placed on bales of hay. They were so close that days after the shooting at High's Ice Cream, Detective Bocock has his own private conversation with her. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the Stay. This episode is brought to you by Too Faced Cosmetics and Better Than Sex Mascara. The name literally says it all. This mascara is that good. There is a formula for anyone and everyone available in original, waterproof, and chocolate that thickens, lengthens, and curls to give you all the drama and volume. Or try the new Naturally Better Than Sex. It has a 98% naturally derived formula. Shop Too Faced Better Than Sex Mascara at Sephora today. They're sitting in the shadows of the Dairy Right Diner. Just like she had done with Bradshaw, Diane shows Detective Bocock the gun. He examines the deadly weapon and listens to her story. He takes in the details of how she shot Connie and Carolyn, remaining quiet. Eventually, he speaks. It's dangerous to have a gun, he says. You could hurt somebody. I'll fix it for you if you want. Diane hands over the pistol as he explains his plan. He is going to put the gun in a box and bury it. To this day, no one has seen it since. When he hears this story, Roy Hartless is stupefied. As a man who resolutely dedicated over half his life to enforcing justice, he deeply believes that nothing is worse than a dirty cop. Yet a reckoning with his former mentor who had served the staunted police for over 30 years is impossible because Detective Bocock died two years prior. While Heartless was astonished by the account, he wasn't disbelieving. Evidence the High's ice cream case was muddied had cropped up far before Diane's confession. These days, we would have more documentation on a petty larceny charge at Walmart than they did for this case. I don't know what they did or did not do, but it doesn't appear like they did a whole lot, said James Williams, who was Staunton's chief of police at the time of Diane's death in January, 2009. The little that had been written was hardly useful, as Bocock filled the pages with notes such as, We turned right and drove to Coulter Street, turned right on Coulter and drove an average speed to Spotswood Road, turned left on Spotswood Road, then turned right, and continued to Randolph Street. These directions may have brought Bocock to the scene of the crime, but they certainly didn't lead to any meaningful conclusions. His shoddy handiwork didn't end there. When Roy Hartless, the former paperboy-turned-cop, began examining the case in 1999, he was unable to find the transcript of Diane's polygraph. What's more, Hartless discovered that he was the first police officer to ever speak with some of the victim's closest family members. I was astounded, Hartless told the Hook. Being there representing the Staunton police, it made me feel about two feet tall. Before William Thomas' arrest, local newspapers contemplated why Staunton's law enforcement was moving so slowly on catching the criminal. Even when Thomas went to trial, citizens like Lowell Sheets, the man who'd connected Joyce Bradshaw with Roy Hartless, had little confidence in the cops who'd brought Thomas in. I don't see how any real investigative force could have charged him to start with, Sheets said. Carol Smoots, Carolyn's surviving twin, who'd had multiple skirmishes with Bocock, always felt that something was off with the chief detective. Carol had dogged the detectives in the months after the murder and demanded to know if Bocock had checked the drains near High's ice cream for bullet shells or interrogated High's employees. He hadn't. Detective David Bocock graduated from multiple law enforcement academies and taught police science at a local community college. It seems unlikely he was incompetent at his job. All these facts point to the cover up of a crooked cop. But none of them explain what was going on between him and Diane. On January 19th, 2009, before she could appear in court, Sharon Diane Crawford Smith dies without giving the police any hints as to why a queer teenage outcast would have spent so much time with a chief detective twice her age. Yet a year after authorities shared her confession with the public, an enemy of Bocock files a $200 million civil suit against the city of Staunton that includes a scandalous claim as to why the unlikely duo were in cahoots. The plaintiff is William Thomas, the very man Detective Bocock had arrested for the murders of Connie and Carolyn. Thomas contends this false accusation ruined his life, that it had kept him from finding a job and that the Staunton Police Department had continued to harass Thomas for over 40 years. He argues that Detective Bocock had willingly shifted the blame to an innocent man because he was romantically involved with the real culprit and that she had fathered at least one of his children. It's a wild theory that amps up the voltage of a situation already highly charged with drama, but could it be true? Not long after Diane executes her coworkers at High's Ice Cream, she checks into a mental health facility. According to the New York Daily News, she stays for a few months before moving to Durham, North Carolina, where she marries and has a daughter. She eventually returns to Staunton as a divorcee, where she works as a nurse and moves in with a woman who would be Diane's lifelong romantic partner. But the New York Daily News article doesn't mention that Diane actually had two daughters. In Diane's obituary, the youngest daughter is mentioned by name, noting that she and her husband are residents of Staunton. When it comes to her nebulous firstborn, the obituary simply reads, the eldest daughter resides out of the area. No name, no whereabouts. Maybe Diane was actually bi or pansexual, capable of romantic feelings for women and men. It seems plausible that in the 1960s, a person's sexual activity could easily be miscategorized in a black-and-white manner as either straight or gay. Joyce Bradshaw made a point of telling The Hook that Detective Bocock was widely considered to be a ladies' man. I never liked talking to him. He had the smirking smile and the dancing eyes that just make a woman feel uncomfortable. It could be that young Diane fell for the charm of a man who took her under his wing when she desperately needed emotional shelter. Or maybe William Thomas' statement is all wrong. Maybe Diane's eldest daughter wasn't fathered by Detective Bocock. Instead of being a hidden love child, her name could be omitted from Diane's obituary because she is estranged from her mother or wants her privacy respected. This is certainly the case for the rest of Diane's family who have no desire to speak to the press. After all, William Thomas is a peculiar character with a reputation for embellishing the truth. His lawsuit is dismissed, probably because he insists on being his own lawyer and hasn't mounted a very solid case. His name had been cleared of both murders long ago, so why would the police harass him? The only person who ever admits to persecuting Thomas is Carol Smoots. The summer after Thomas's acquittal, Carol is driving when he spots Thomas walking out of a store. He revs the engine and heads straight towards Thomas. The car bumper is nearly touching the back of Thomas' legs when Carol reaches for the knife. All of a sudden, he hears a voice in his head. Maybe it isn't him, says the voice. Thomas walked away that day, unharmed. Carol drives off, wondering if it was God or Connie who kept him from making a terrible mistake. If only Sharon Diane Crawford-Smith had a similar guardian angel to guide her in 1967. Instead, she and Detective Bocock catalyzed a chain of sorrow. Those families didn't do anything to deserve what Dave Bocock put them through, William Thomas tells the press when he filed his suit. Thomas's ability to sympathize with a man who almost killed him is admirable. Roy Heartless agrees the victim's families suffered needlessly and believes Detective Bocock's relationship with Diane obstructed any progress on the case for decades. He knows that Joyce Bradshaw had never stopped trying to alert the authorities about Diane, but despite years of contacting different law enforcement agencies, no one listened. It makes Heartless wonder if Bocock's co workers, bent on saving face and protecting the force's reputation, knew what was going on between the detective and Diane. It seems the bond that the unlikely duo shared will never be publicly explained, although Diane's obituary hints at a second, quite plausible theory. She was born August 21st, 1948 in Staunton, it announces, the daughter of Delphia Red Crawford Bradshaw. She was a graduate of Virginia Western Community College. If Delphia Crawford is Diane's mother, who is her father? Detective Bocock was 18 years old at the time of Diane's birth, perhaps just as much of a Don Juan then as when Joyce Bradshaw sat uncomfortably before him, trying in vain to facilitate justice. After Diane's confession, the hook tracks down her mother and asks if David Bocock fathered Diane. Delphia Crawford promptly hangs up the phone Her reaction may not mean much, as the last thing most grieving families want is to speak to the media. But shooting practice sounds like the sort of bonding activity shared between a parent and child. Bocock may have gone to great lengths to save the life of his loved one, but today Carol Smoots would give anything for a similar opportunity. I was her protector and I let that happen to Connie, he said. I still blame myself. Yet the guiltiest of them all remains Diane, who feels great waves of shame while she unravels her deathbed tale. As she leaves her life behind, she worries about the victims' families and hopes to put an end to their quest for truth. That's what means the most, Heartless said about his relentless desire to aid the grieving heaveners. It's painful, and it opens old wounds, but in the end, there's closure. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Francois Verove, a former police officer, husband, and father. But Verove has a secret, one he's kept to himself for over three decades, one that dates back to his early days on the force. He could hold the key to one of the longest running investigations in the history of the Paris police force and the answer to a question that has plagued investigators for 35 years. Who is the pockmarked killer? Find out next week. For more information on Sharon Diane Crawford-Smith and the murders of Constance Moods-Hevener and Carolyn Hevener-Perry, amongst the many sources we used we found the investigative articles published by The Hook extremely helpful to our research. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian boureau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rosanna Crossman. Supervising editor Derek Jennings. Sound designed by Matthias torres sound supervisor Tom Pink edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley